Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Judge Thomas Hardiman details some recent and not-so-recent history of judicial independence. Author Tom Muller talks about what makes a whistleblower. Frank DeCotter talks about how dictators get there and how they stay there. And U.S. Senator Rick Scott of Florida talks about driving down the cost of a college degree. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The opioid crisis uh, has ravaged many communities in the United States and uh, caused a lot of consternation for law enforcement and uh, the medical communities in those places. And a a lot of, uh, you know, very well-meaning people don't really know what to do about it. Uh, To talk about that, uh, Jeff Singer, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and also a surgeon, dialing in from his compound outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, Clark Neely, the Vice President for Criminal Justice here at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Jeff, uh, well, to both of you, really, um, I was in, as of this recording, I was in Vancouver, Canada about a week ago and visited Scott McDonald uh, and a gentleman named uh, Greg Fries uh, at Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver, and uh, we spoke. I spoke with uh, Dr. McDonald. I spoke with Greg, who is a um, he's a heroin addict, and he visits Crosstown on a, a regular basis. And uh, upon our visit, when, right before we talked to him, he injected heroin that he received from the clinic. He sat down in a little room. Uh, he injected it into uh, his shoulder muscle. And then we talked to him for uh, 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, he didn't seem to lose a step in that conversation. Uh, he was extremely personable. And what was most notable about uh, what he was doing is in that setting, it didn't really seem like he was doing anything uh, more impactful than getting a flu shot or uh, injecting a vitamin or something like that. And it's a far cry from what you see and hear about uh, the opioid crisis here in the United States. So to you, uh, Dr. Singer, um, you know, what do you make in general of how the U.S. has handled the opioid crisis as a medical matter? Well, the U.S. is basically wedded to it's kind of a, a combination of a moralistic approach and an incorrect scientific approach. So the moralistic approach is that using some of these substances, of course, is uh, morally wrong. It's a vice. The false scientific approach is that once you get addicted to these drugs, the uh, drug sort of hijacks your brain. You lose control over yourself. You have no more personal autonomy. You're like a zombie being controlled by the drug. But in fact, That's not the case. And there are many very uh, highly respected uh, scholars and there are decades of evidence that suggests that that's not the case. There are a number of people, in fact, the majority of people who uh, uh, recover on their own from heroin addiction by the time they hit their 30s. And there are many people who are users that don't become addicted. So a lot of U.S. policy is based upon a, a real misunderstanding of of drug drug use and addiction, um, and as a result, it tends to treat it like a crime. We punish people because number one, they're engaging in this immoral, risky behavior that puts them at jeopardy of becoming zombies, hijacked by the drug, uh, and and so we address that through law enforcement by arresting people, punishing people, but that doesn't work for addiction. Uh, all people, regardless of uh, where they stand on the scientific debate over addiction, agree on the definition, which is that uh, addiction is compulsive use or compulsive engagement in a behavior despite negative consequences. So by definition, punishment doesn't work for addiction, because if it did, then it wouldn't be addiction. (laughs) People are constantly punishing themselves because they are seeing their lives get ruined and they can't 
stop themselves from continuing to, to engage in this behavior. Yet we treat it as a crime and we try to punish people. And it, all it does is make things worse, fill up our prisons, and it's inhumane. Okay. So to you, Clark, um, in treating this uh, opioid problem as a problem of crime, how's that going? Well, the drug war has been a complete and comprehensive failure. Uh, and if it was just a failure, that'd be bad enough. But of course, it's, it's, it's more than a failure. It's, it's a failure that has uh, blighted the lives of many people. Um, it, it, it entails the government doing violence to people for choosing to engage in a particular kind of behavior, some of whom, whom seem unable to, um, to stop it uh, because of uh, addiction and the compulsion that that entails. So, um, but the, unfortunately, the, the criminal justice system is a kind of blunt instrument, and it's one of the, the handful of blunt instruments that the government feels uh, adept at. At wielding, um, and doesn't seem to really care very much whether or not uh, the the desired result ensues or not, uh, and so uh, the state just sort of uh, naturally defaults to uh, a policy of doing violence to people uh, who engage in conduct that the state doesn't wish to see, and continues to do it regardless of whether the results are efficacious or not. And of course, they have not been efficacious. And again, the drug war has been a complete and comprehensive failure. It sounds like they have an addiction. Yeah, well, um, just you know, put, put put the violence down and go on to something else. But they can't do it, and they won't do it. Um, uh, or at least uh, it's been very difficult to get them to consider other uh, alternatives uh, to addressing uh, what is, in fact, a very serious uh, problem: the opioid addiction. But the uh, uh, powers that be, the government, seems unable to, to really seriously embrace or think of other approaches to that problem than simply doing violence to people. And it's interesting, also, that you know, it's very arbitrary and inconsistent as to which addictions uh, government tolerates. So for example, in the description you gave uh, in, in, in Vancouver, if, uh, if you had a, a friend who you knew had a drinking problem, they were addicted to the drug alcohol. And uh, you know, you personally may think they're making a, pers a, a big mistake as in, for themselves, but you sat down with them and you watched your friend have a, have a drink and conduct a normal conversation with you and then go about his business. Uh, while you may personally think he's making a bad decision, that's okay with you because that's his decision. But if it was a different substance, one that is considered on the on the blacklist, well, then that's a whole different story. Now this guy has to be arrested and put in prison, um, and that that's not helping his problem. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it's, that's another thing. For example, addiction to alcohol can cause much more physical harm than addiction to an opioid. Most of the harms uh, that people incur by addiction to heroin and other opioids result directly from the fact that they're prohibited by law. So they're using dirty needles, spreading disease. They don't know what they're purchasing on the black market. It's actually safer to uh, to use regularly an opioid than it is to use regularly alcohol. So, uh, Jeff, what in your uh, understanding of what uh, Canada has done with respect to uh, opioids, um, how has their experience differed from ours here in the U.S.? Well, Canada's taken a much more uh, uh, humane and rational approach, in my opinion, because they've embraced what is known as harm reduction. Now, this isn't unique to Canada. This kind of approach is seen throughout most of Europe and most of the developed world. We see this also in Australia, in addition to Canada. And uh, and that's why, while the substance use disorder problem exists throughout the developed world, it's not unique to the United States, but the overdose rates in the U.S. are far exceed the rates in the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world, instead of focusing on law enforcement and a punitive approach, they're focusing on reducing harms that result from the drugs being acquired in the black market. So in, in Canada, they basically have said... Um, if you're going to be using this, uh, injecting with, with this uh, illegal substance, why don't you come indoors off the street, out of the sight of the general public? We will give you a clean needle and syringe, so it's much less likely that you're going to spread disease. And we will be standing by, real close by, uh, with the antidote naloxone, so in case you overdose because what you purchased on the black market may be of a strength that you didn't realize or may be laced with uh, things like fentanyl that make it more potent. Well, we're here to save your life. And in addition to that, we'll take this needle and syringe back when you're done. So when you go out on the street, you won't be sharing it, but you're welcome to come back as often a time as you need to, to use. Uh, 
And, and so what ends up happening is um, not only are you reducing the, the risks of overdose and the spread of disease, but you're also treating these people like human beings who have value as opposed to criminals. And that changes everything for them too, because now as they experience has shown us that as, as uh, addicts come in and take advantage of things like safe injection facilities um, and they're treated as people who uh, their life means something, at least to the people operating the safe injection facility, they start taking stock in their own life. There's, it's been demonstrated in uh, center after center that the presence of these safe injection facilities actually increases the number of people going into treatment as a result of the fact that the way they were treated by these people. Uh, Clark, to you, uh, what stands in the way of the United States or individual states or cities uh, deciding to try to experiment with some sort of facility to allow people to safely consume uh, these drugs that they're addicted to? Well, right now it's the criminal justice system um, led particularly by the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, which has responded uh, to a number of groups expressing uh, a desire to uh, open safe injection or safe consumption facilities in places like San Francisco or most recently in Philadelphia, um, DOJ is aware of those efforts and has um, expressed its implacable opposition. Uh, former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein even took to the pages of the New York Times last summer to write an op-ed saying that, that as far as the Department of Justice is, is concerned, this will not happen. Uh, and that um, prohibitionist mindset is reflected to a certain extent um, among uh, state and local officials as well, although uh, there's some greater willingness, I would say, among at least some of those to try some Something else, and we should try something else. As Jeff mentioned, the um, the the fatality rate um, in the United States for opioid uh, deaths is is skyrocketing, and the prohibitionist policy that people like Rod Rosenstein and others at DOJ favor has been a complete and utter failure. Uh, and it doesn't work. It's uh, costing uh, lives. People are dying uh, while we're pursuing this uh, inefficacious and violent policy of, um, of, of law enforcement uh, as our primary response to the opioid addiction. And the sooner we move away from that failed policy, the more lives we will save. Uh, Jeff, to you, the, when I spoke with Scott McDonald, he said during a, a period of, of study at uh, his facility, they had more than, I think, I believe, 80 or 88,000 doses that were consumed uh, on site and they had 14 occasions where they uh, had to intervene and each of those interventions were uh, handled in a pretty effective way. Nobody died and uh, so things are seem to just be rolling along there. Can you give us a sense in terms of uh, overdose rates, the actual uh, the, the data between the U.S. and, and countries that, that treat opioids differently? Well, yeah. For example, safe injection sites or safe consumption rooms, different countries call them different things. They've been around since the early 90s uh, in most of Europe, like I say, in Canada and Australia. Now, all of the, the, those countries have dramatically lower overdose rates than we do. And in Portugal, they decriminalized all drugs and put their emphasis on harm reduction in, starting in 2001. They have roughly six overdose per million population now. They, they had among the highest in Europe before they did this. And compared to the U.S., which the last uh, numbers I have is 185 overdose deaths per million population. Uh, there were studies done in uh, shortly after uh, Vancouver started the first uh, uh, safe injection site in 2003. That's when the first one opened in Vancouver, British Columbia, the first one in North America. And uh, they found uh, a 35% drop in overdoses resulting directly from that safe in injection site because the study reported in Lancet in around 2011 um, actually was able to, to make statistical adjustments. And they could see that in the area near and surrounding the safe injection site, there was a 35% drop in overdose rates relative to the rest of the city. Now there are, of course, multiple safe injection sites in Vancouver, in Toronto, in, in Montreal. Uh, so uh, th th this has a proven record of dropping overdoses and it, it kind of stands to reason there's somebody standing close by with the antidote. So it, why wouldn't it drop overdose rates? 
Well, Safe House is a proposed, uh, well, it's a group that proposes to create uh, a safe injection facility um, and has probably made the most progress uh, in, in that direction um, of, of any of the uh, other groups in the country that have expressed a similar interest. Um, it's a group of, I think, very committed, uh, very enlightened people uh, who recognize that uh, the uh, law enforcement model is not working. Uh, and they propose to create this facility of the kind that, that Jeff described a moment ago, uh, where people can go and safely inject opioids and have people uh, there to care for them if something goes wrong. Uh, and again, this is something that DOJ got wind of and said, absolutely not. Uh, we will not permit this to happen. Um, and ultimately ended up filing um, a federal lawsuit, uh, what we call a declaratory judgment action, uh, seeking essentially a court order that Safe House not be permitted to open this facility in Philadelphia. Uh, and recently, and rather surprisingly, uh, just lost round one in the federal district court, which interpreted uh, the statute that DOJ was uh, seeking to invoke, which is sometimes colloquially referred to as the crack house statute. It was a statute enacted in the 1980s to uh, uh, empower the federal government to punish people who sort of operated these houses where people went to smoke crack. It was updated later to include people who you know sponsor uh, rave dance of parties where people go and take and certain drugs. It, it, if I understand correctly, Joe Biden was a was a sponsor of the what's no, what was known as the Rave Act. Right. Um, it was also my understanding that that law included civil liability for people who knew or should have known uh, that drugs were going to be consumed on the premises of a certain site. What, right. di what difference does that make? Well, it, uh, so it does provide uh, both criminal and civil penalties for people who uh, knowingly and intentionally provide a facility for people uh, to use drugs. Now, um, the question is, uh, does that, is that language expansive enough to include people um, who's um, are not Providing a place where they want people to go and do drugs, their the primary the point of a safe injection facility is to uh, not so facilitate or to encourage people to do drugs, but instead to say if you are going to do this, um, then do it in a safe environment, much the same way a parent might say to a, a, a drug addicted child, if you're going to do this, don't go out and do it under a bridge somewhere. Come home and we'll try to take care of you. We'd rather you not do it, but. Well, we'd rather you do it in a safe place if you have to do it. That is essentially the model here. And to try to stretch this federal law to cover uh, this obviously uh, unanticipated and unintended uh, uh, situation is uh, something that this district judge would not go along with. Now, very clearly, uh, DOJ will be appealing this to the Court of Appeals, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, I, I, you know, unfortunately, I think judges in the past have been over backwards to essentially try to uphold and validate federal law enforcement efforts um, with respect to the drug war. Let's hope that this becomes a case where they break tradition and uh, allow some, you know, sort of more enlightened policies to uh, sort of compete in the marketplace of ideas and policy because basically anything other than the punitive criminal justice approach is likely to be better. Uh, Jeff, to you, when um, when you held your uh, full day conference on opioids uh, recently at the Cato Institute, one of the points that was made by one of the speakers really jumped out at me, and that was the idea. And I believe it was uh, Darwin Fisher, one of our one of the speakers, uh, made the point that a lot of people who come to safe injection sites or uh, clinics where they are given uh, a, a dose of uh, drugs. Um, many of these people who show up at these places have never injected themselves, that they are typically women. And if you want to talk about people who are in a vulnerable situation, not knowing how to inject yourself safely and uh, being completely dependent on someone else uh, to inject for you is, is indeed a very vulnerable spot. Yes. And that's... Uh... Surprising to a lot of people, but that that is the case. So they're much more when they're injecting by themselves. They're much more uh, at risk of having a, a severe complication. And the people in the safe injection facility are there to help them uh, by you know give, giving them pointers on how to use these needles safely and how to inject safely. I've been shopping for a house recently, and um, I saw a house I thought was perfect. And there were two drug clinics nearby, and I thought, no, not interested. So how important is the fact that a, a local community doesn't want one of these places around for uh, concern of their own property values, for uh, concern for what, what they would view as their own safety? Clark? 
Well, look, the the question basically is where is this activity going to take place? Uh, not, uh, you know, what's the best way to try to uh, um, to, to eliminate it? And that that just doesn't seem to be feasible. And so, what happens, of course, now is that uh, the um, uh, we marginalize people. Uh, they they're literally there's a, a very well known uh, neighborhood in Philadelphia, Kenilworth, where people go uh, to uh, to inject drugs. It's a, an extraordinarily uh, unsanitary and unpleasant place to be. Um, so, you know, as a homeowner myself and a parent of small children, I, I get it. I understand that people um, prefer to be able to keep that away uh, from their neighborhoods, or some people do. But it's interesting. There was recently a poll in Philadelphia that indicated that um, people in and near that neighborhood actually expressed uh, a real willingness to have Safe House come into the neighborhood um, because they understand that basically, like, this activity is going to take place somewhere, and there are better and worse uh, settings uh, for that to happen. And so, um, both I think as a matter of sort of uh, humanity and just pragmatism, um, this activity is going to happen. It's going to be going on in some neighborhoods and we have to decide essentially um, you know, what is the precise way in which we want it to happen. And uh, um, I, I applaud people who are uh, basically enlightened enough to say, look, um, as a matter of, of trying to save lives and recognizing um, that uh, these people will do this somewhere or the other, let's have it done here and let's have it done safely. And, and in fact, if I, uh, in, in Vancouver, Darwin Fisher had mentioned that when they just started up there, program back in 2003, they again had pushback from the community saying, I don't want uh, a place that's a magnet for IV drug users. And the argument they were making is you already, this this neighborhood has IV drug users in plain sight every day, many of them living on the street, many of them discarding needles in the street. What we're going to be doing is bringing them actually indoors, uh, out, out from the general public site. So if anything, this is going to improve the situation. And now the community is, has become supportive. In fact, there was a study done, uh, by, reported by the Canadian Medical Association a couple of years after Insight started, and they found that uh, there was the uh, there was a, roughly a, a 50% reduction in uh, public in, uh, drug use in the area, in the neighborhood surrounding Insight within 12 weeks of Insight opening. So... Um, it's important to kind of reassure the public that if, if anything, this is going to reduce the likelihood that you'll be seeing drug use in the streets. The federal government has its hands in medicine all over the place with respect to the, the ability of doctors to prescribe is a, is a permit handed out by the DEA. Um, and the Supreme Court has re recently, well, not that recently, I guess now, uh, has dealt with uh, what the federal role may be in this arena. So what what do we know about how courts have ruled with respect to states simply by virtue of being a state, having the autonomy to be able to make decisions like this and what that might look like going forward? Yeah, I mean, the question in any case like this is what limits, if any, are there on the Supreme Court's willingness to allow the federal government to exercise constitutionally unauthorized powers in the pursuit of this failed drug war? Uh, in 2005, we had the Gonzalez v. Raich case, which held that uh, a federal law that uh, criminalizes the purely intrastate non-commercial distribution of homegrown marijuana. In other words, you grow it at home and give it to a neighbor so it's not sold and it never crosses a state line, that the federal government can nevertheless criminalize that um, under its Commerce Clause powers, which authorizes the federal government to regulate commerce among the states. Of course, here you have neither commerce nor anything crossing a state line. It was an absolutely preposterous ruling, um, but it was six to three. The Supreme Court upheld the federal government's uh, uh, extra constitutional power to do that. I say extra constitutional. The Supreme Court disagrees. Similar argument has been made in the safe house litigation that we talked about earlier. It's not only a question of whether uh, there is a federal statute on point, which the district court judge held that in fact there was not. There is a further question, and uh, Professor Randy Barnett, another Cato fellow, uh, did an excellent amicus brief on this point. Um, even if there were a federal statute that applied to this conduct, the question would still remain whether the federal government has the constitutional authority to reach in 
inside a purely local facility like a safe house and regulate conduct that does not involve the production, distribution, sale of anything whatsoever um, uh, under its commerce power because that's the power that the, the government would assert in this case. Um, there is nothing being bought or sold inside one of these safe injection facilities. There's nothing being produced or distributed. Uh, and so that uh, raises the question of how on earth does the federal government have a constitutional authority to regulate what goes on, on inside a purely local uh, facility like this? If it's you know particularly if it's fine with uh, the state and local authorities, and the answer is of course the federal government doesn't have any legitimate constitutional authority to dictate a nationwide prohibitory drug policy. They've been exercising that power for forty or fifty years, but it's not one that was ever uh, genuinely or legitimately uh, uh, delegated to the federal government by the Constitution. That has only been an artifact of the Supreme Court's willingness to assume an essentially supine position in the face of the federal government's exercise of unconstitutional authority like this. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, and Dr. Jeff Singer, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We continue to cover uh, and provide analysis on, uh, with respect to policy, uh, covering opioids. And Jeff, in particular, has done a, done a lot of work in that area. We appreciate it very much. And you can read all of that work and uh, follow uh, Jeff's voluminous media appearances on this subject that that uh, seem interminable at our website cato.org Early colonial judges often served at the pleasure of their royal governors, but judicial independence has a long history. Judge Thomas Hardiman is a circuit judge for the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. He talked about the history of judicial independence, both recent and not so recent, at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event in September. I'd like to speak to you today about judicial independence in the Roberts Court. Hamilton wrote in Federalist 78, there is no liberty if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive powers. Since liberty can have nothing to fear from the judiciary alone, but would have everything to fear from its union with either of the other departments, the complete independence of the courts of justice is essential. Hamilton viewed an independent judiciary as a citadel of public justice and the public security. But he knew the judicial branch, which of course he regarded as the weakest of the three departments and least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution, required greater autonomy than colonial courts enjoyed. For federal courts to be the bulwarks of liberty, judges needed more than an independent spirit. They needed structural protections to bolster their firmness and independence in faithfully performing so arduous a duty. So what were Hamilton's indispensable ingredients for an independent judiciary? Permanency in office and tenure during good behavior. I see the wisdom in Hamilton's insistence upon permanency in office. I think most Article III judges do. But my affinity for life tenure has nothing to do with comfort and security. Some may consider a federal judgeship a sinecure, but that is the corruption of life tenure. Properly understood, life tenure is a necessary, but not a sufficient condition for judicial independence. And judicial independence is essential to ensure that everyone who comes before the court is heard without respect to persons, so we can do equal right to the poor and to the rich and faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon us under the Constitution and laws of the United States. We judges protect liberty by our fidelity to the oath of office, which includes the timeless principles I just mentioned. And for over two centuries, judicial independence has made the discharge of that oath a reality. Court watchers and commentators alike have spent this past summer wrapping their minds around what they called the shifting alliances and surprise votes that marked the end of the last term. How do those regarded as the court's liberal justices prevail in almost half the cases decided five to four? 
Why have Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh disagreed in nearly half of those rulings? For those of us who have served as judges for a number of years, there's nothing surprising about all this. It's simply a function of nine independent justices of the Supreme Court. Now, whether you're pleased or displeased with recent decisions of the court, one conclusion seems indisputable. The Roberts Court practices and embraces the judicial independence fundamental to our founding. Hamilton believed that tenure during good behavior was the best expedient to secure a steady, upright, and impartial administration of the laws. And he hoped that independent judges would be an essential safeguard against the effects of society's occasional ill humors. After more than 230 years, our federal judiciary continues to vindicate Hamilton's aspiration. The idea of an independent judiciary arose within a broader conversation about separation of powers prior to the American Revolution. Hamilton and fellow delegates brought to the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 an informed perspective on English and American judicial precedents, as well, of course, as insights from Locke and Montesquieu. More poignantly, they brought their experience as colonists under the British crown. Prior to 1701, English judicial officers served at the pleasure of the king. Even jurists appointed during good behavior, who effectively possessed a judicial life estate, could be forced to forfeit their office for misconduct, whether real or manufactured. That appointment practice went unchallenged until 1628, when Charles I ordered Sir John Walter to surrender his post as chief baron of the court of the exchequer. Walter's offense, he defied King Charles's call for the dissolution of parliament. When his court sanctioned members of parliament for conspiring to resist dissolution of the commons, Walter's dissented. King Charles deemed that dissent treasonous and he wanted Walter gone. Walter challenged the king. Unlike English jurists removed before him, Walter insisted that his tenure was based on good behavior, so he could be removed only if the king's bench found that he had misbehaved. Charles begrudgingly allowed Walter to remain in his post, although Charles later dismissed, every, uh, dismissed several judges later before ultimately accepting Parliament's petition for judicial tenure, quam diu se bene gesserit during good behavior. And while English monarchs continued to dismiss judges intermittently, the governing commitment generally remained. Judges enjoyed tenure during good behavior, independent from the pleasure of the crown. With Parliament's 1701 Act of Settlement, tenure during good behavior became part of English law. But the rules, of course, in the colonies were different. Early colonial judges served overwhelmingly at the pleasure of their royal governors. And other than Pennsylvania, no colonial assembly could impeach a despotic royal governor. England wanted it that way because the colonial bench was deemed so mediocre. Colonial bars lacked competent men for the bench. So Westminster's colonial office begged the best English lawyers to serve in America, all to no avail. King George III established tenure at royal pleasure in 1761 because in his view, the state of learning in the colonies was so low. George III, George III distrusted not only the colonial bar, he of course distrusted the colonies themselves, especially in the run-up to Lexington and Concord. Attempting to assert ever greater control in 1772, George established a fixed salary for superior court judges in Massachusetts, effectively preventing them from receiving grants from local governments. That's why our Declaration of Independence charged, the king has made judges dependent upon his goodwill alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. To whom would judges be beholden? London? or their local communities. So frustrated were the colonists by the Crown's refusal to grant judicial tenure during good behavior that it became a feature of nearly every state constitution drafted after 
1776. Though state constitutions varied in their models for selecting judges and granting tenure, judicial independence was ubiquitous. The 1780 Massachusetts Bill of Rights offers one example, stating, it is essential to the preservation of the rights of every individual, his life, liberty, property, and character, that there be an impartial interpretation of the laws and administration of justice. It is the right of every citizen to be tried by judges as free, impartial, and independent as the lot of humanity will admit. It is therefore not only the best policy, but for the security of the rights of the people and of every citizen that judges hold their office as long as they behave themselves well, and that they should have honorable salaries ascertained and established by standing laws. Impartial interpretation of the laws and administration of justice struck particular chords, of course, in Philadelphia during the summer of 1787. Prior to the Revolutionary War, Parliament was paramount. Whatever it said was law. This absolute sovereignty insulated legislative error from review, so English citizens had no recourse but for Parliament to correct itself. Pamphleteers wrote about this dynamic in America, suggesting that an independent judiciary could correct the legislature. Delegates in Philadelphia took that proposition one step further. An independent judiciary could invalidate legislation that contravened the Constitution. This form of separation of powers, our checks and balances, did not meet the strict separation championed by Montesquieu. But as Madison argued in Federalist 47, such overlapping separation at least precluded the, quote, accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, the very definition of tyranny. Becoming a whistleblower is a fraught decision. There are few accolades when the leaders of a company or the government would prefer that the information you are revealing would remain obscure. Tom Muller is author of Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud. In that book, he details the exploits, stresses, and difficulties faced by whistleblowers. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. Alan Jones was an investigator in the Pennsylvania State um, Office of the Inspector General. He happened to find that the state, the Pennsylvania State pharmacist, received a $2,000 check in an account that was not registered, uh, to, not officially registered, no official um, owner of that account. That's a felony offense in Pennsylvania. Um, and the, the check was signed by Jansen, the, um, the, the um, subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. And he started looking at what it was that Jansen & Johnson & Johnson and others, Pfizer and Novartis and others, were doing, paying money to this man. Gradually, he's, he's a, he was a great investigator, um, a truly impressive investigator. Um, and uh, he, he, uh, he gradually started putting the pieces together and seeing the bigger picture, uh, what's going on here. And what was going on was that um, these pharma companies were, were systematically corrupting the state health officials to make sure that their highly toxic, <laughs> extremely powerful second-generation antipsychotic medicine was the medicine of choice for a wide range. It's, it's, it's this, 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 uh, this drug is called Risperdal, and it's infamous at this point. Um, a wide range of, of conditions for which it was never cleared by the FDA. They had started in Texas with something called TMAP, the, the medication protocol for Texas, and they had cloned that in 20 other states, and Pennsylvania was the last of these states. Billions of dollars of overspending for drugs that ultimately turned out to be either um, ineffective or extremely harmful. Uh, some of the side effects don't bear thinking about um, and have caused immense harm. Ultimately, there was a settlement, a series of settlements, uh, thanks to Alan Jones 
um, putting together a couple banker boxes full, full of information, and then um, trying to convince people that he had a story. Now, the, the, the plot thickens when he finds out not only do the pharmaceutical companies resist his attempts to out this information, his own inspector general clamps down on him. So we have private and public forces attempting to muzzle this story. It seemed very clear that Governor Tom Ridge, who was the governor at the time, had made clear that um, he very pro-business, very um, anti-fraud investigation. He started under his watch. Um, active files were being destroyed. Anything that was closed was being covered up. There was not a paper trail um, per se. Uh, the circumstantial evidence was very strong. He arrives, lawyers start um, being controlling every meeting, and files start getting shredded. So it was a fairly clear set of, of circumstances. But there was no direct, um, no direct link to, to, to Tom Ridge. Tom Ridge may not even have known about this particular case. It was a policy to, as the SEC has had problems, destroying old case files, which is a terrible waste of investigative work, but good if you don't want people connecting the dots, right? So Alan Jones had to fight off his own office, which retaliated against him, uh, threatened him, fired him eventually. And then he had to find someone to take this case uh, that he knew was extremely important. He you know, he is someone, he, one of the characteristics of whistleblowers that I see again and again and again is an ability to empathize with the ultimate victims of the scheme. They look through the spreadsheets, they look through the pep talks and, and, and the bonus payments, and they say, this drug that we're making or that I'm allowing to be sold, this is hurting people. This is, this is causing harm. And the next statement I often hear is, what if that was your mother that was taking that drug? What if that was your brother? These very strong, empathetic statements that make that, that somehow the whistleblowers pierce the veil of, of corporate or, or government you know, um, boilerplate and said, oh, no, actually, someone's getting really badly hurt here. So he, on his own recognizance, with no job, living in this cabin, which I, which I stayed in, um, and with no money, um, shopped around to the different attorneys general in the states where this scheme was being perpetrated. He finally found someone to listen in Texas, and this wonderful, wonderful woman um, who was part of the, uh, an attorney in the attorney general's office, um, who, who finally heard him. And, and he remembers that moment as this is a moment of, of bliss, uh, where, uh, and she remembers it with a certain amount of, of amusement. She said, you know, and she has this wonderful Texas accent, you know, uh, Cynthia O'Keefe is her name. Um, this guy comes down from Pennsylvania, and, and he looks like Walker, Texas Ranger, which is a popular uh, Chuck Norris. And he, he acted a very handsome guy, very, you know. Uh, and and he, he's sitting here telling me, he's Walker, Texas Ranger, he's telling me what's going on down here in Texas. And she said, I thought it was impossible. The level of wrongdoing that he was talking about seemed impossible. She, however, felt it was her duty to start investigating. She started investigating. They gathered 200 bankers' boxes of data from the from the company, and sure enough, two hundred bankers' boxes. How many, how many? Millions of pages. Wow. Millions of pages. Teams from the DOJ and from her office spent an entire year and a half going over this stuff. And sure enough, Alan Jones was right. And she said it's a tribute to his ability as an investigator that the the fraud scheme that he identified with a handful of documents. Um, proved in every detail that he described to them to be correct. In his new book, How to Be a Dictator, Frank DeCotter examines the cults and propaganda surrounding 20th century dictators from Hitler and Stalin to Mao Zedong and Kim Il-sung. Those men were the founders of modern dictatorships, and they learned from each other and from history to build their regimes and maintain their public images. Takater spoke at the Cato Institute in September. I'm a little um, apprehensive. How to be a dictator? What 
if there is a budding dictator sitting in the audience, will I be held responsible for that? I, I hope not. In any event, if, if there is one, it, it's uh, invariably a he, actually. Uh, let me tell him um, that it's not really a great career move. Um, the main reason is that there's not much of a retirement plan. You have to ruthlessly uh, suppress. And of course, you, you must start with your friends rather than your foes, since your friends are the only ones who can really betray you. Um, so you become paranoid and will end up having to live a very lonely existence. There's no such thing as going back to your stamp collection, you know, handing in your notice and go fishing in the countryside. Now, in any event, in any event even if there is a budding dictator, um, I'm afraid that there simply isn't a simple rule book. There, there aren't 12 steps to be taken in order to become a great dictator. It's not a ladybird book. Um, it's not like uh, providing first aid to somebody. It's actually extraordinarily complicated. And what comes out of it, I think, is that dictators are unique individuals who operate in unique circumstances. I've picked eight to really illustrate that huge diversity. I start with Benito Mussolini. I move on, I think quite predictably, to cover Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Kim Il-sung, and I add three minor ones, Papa Doc, Duvalier, and Haiti. Oh, wonderful man. <laughs> Ruthless, probably more so than the others. Um, Ceausescu, because he's barking mad, and probably the only one who truly ends up believing in his own cult of personality, is taken aback when he gives a speech in December 1989, uh, when the audience, instead of cheering him, starts booing him, and you can see his voice falter. And of course, a day later, he and his wife are lined up against uh, a toilet block and shot. The last one is Mengistu. Fear not, many people ask me this question, who is Mengistu? <laughs> He's probably the most ruthless African dictator. Uh, Ethiopia, probably two million people who died unnecessarily under his reign. So from Germany in the 1920s, 30s, all the way to an incredibly impoverished part of the world, like Haiti or Ethiopia, a very broad sort of overview that illustrates how extraordinarily different they all, they all are. Of course, there are common features. You must be ruthless. And it also helps if you have no empathy for other human beings, since as a dictator, you will make all major decisions uh, at the cost of occasionally millions of lives. So if that keeps you up at night, again, not a good career move. Um, now, what comes out of my study, well, how to be a dictator, but also the subtitle, um, the cult of personality. I think overall, you can really say that there are two main instruments that dictators use. One is terror, fear, and the other one is image, or the glorification of the dictator, what I refer to as the cult of personality. They go hand in hand. In fact, that is probably um, one of the most um, interesting parts of the book, that it traces very carefully, chronologically, like any historian would, how image and terror move hand in hand. Um, the terror, of course, is well known. The, the concentration camps, the secret police, the torture, the awful crimes against humanity. But less has been said, I think, about the cult of personality, which has been described occasionally as a sort of aberrant side phenomenon. But we forget that throughout the 20th century, literally hundreds of millions of people cheered their own dictators 
even as they were herded down the road to serve them. This, by the way, is your reference to Hayek. Across large parts of the planet, roughly half of the planet in the 20th century, the face of the dictator appeared on hoardings and buildings in every school, every office, every factory. People had to bow to his likeness, pass by his statue, invoke his name, recite his work, extol his genius. So it was more than just a sight phenomenon. I think at the heart of it uh, is a paradox, the paradox of the dictator is that he must create the illusion of popular support. The 20th century, after all, is an age of democracy. People are supposed to be sovereign and select their own leader. But dictators decided to take a shortcut, seize power, either by organizing a coup or by rigging the system. And they found out that when you seize power through violence, you must maintain power through more violence. And violence can be a very blunt instrument. Of course, it's necessary for any dictator to have spies, interrogators, torturers, the secret police. But if a dictator can compel his own people to acclaim him in public, he will last a lot longer. Now, a dictator must instill fear into his own people, but also fear into his immediate entourage. And he's fearful of the people around him. The reason for this is quite straightforward. Dictators, by nature, are weak. Had they been strong, they would have been elected by a majority. But they opted to seize power, often over the bodies of their opponents. And by seizing power, they raised the prospect of a stab in the back. There were rivals, just as ruthless, waiting in the wings and ready to seize power from him. Of course, any dictator can have recourse to a whole range of strategies to control the people around him. There are bloody purges. There is manipulation. There is divide and rule. But ultimately, again, the cult of personality helps a great deal. If a dictator can compel his allies, but also his rivals, to acclaim him in front of all the others, ultimately, he turns them into liars. And when everybody lies, it's very difficult to find out who thinks what. And if you don't know who thinks what, you can't really organize resistance. You can't set up a coup. You can't find allies. This is why I think the cult of personality is so central rather than a side phenomenon. College affordability is a persistent problem for young people and a lingering problem for so many Americans who've taken on student debt. Rick Scott is a Republican U.S. Senator from Florida. At a Capitol Hill event in September, he described how he thinks about higher education and what will lead people to remunerative employment after school. Students across the country are heading back to school, so there's no better time to talk about our education system and how important it is to keep education affordable and attainable for every American student. Now, you should be shocked. What do you think it cost when I went to, uh, I, went to I started junior college because university was expensive. What did it cost a semester when I went to school? 500. 200. You could take 21 hours. 
There's 200, the universities were 255, and so as many of us could do, went, we all would try to go to the uh, think, uh, to junior college first and then go to the university because that was too expensive. Today, the average cost of a private four-year college is more than $32,000 per year. The average cost of a public four-year college for out-of-state students is almost $24,000 per year. And the average cost of a public four-year college for in-state students is almost $10,000 per year. That's crazy. If you look at where it, what it was when I went to school as compared to what it is now. The cost of a four-year degree has increased eight times more than the increase in wages. Remember, what was supposed to happen is you went to school because you made more money. Well, wages are going up way slower than, than, uh, than the, the uh, tuition is. Total student loan debt in the United States now stands at more than $1.5 trillion. The delinquency or default rate is over 11%. Now the Democrats have a great new solution. It's, it's really great. Their plan is just make it all disappear. <laughs> Poof, just like that. Cancel all student loan debt. It's going to be magic. But of course, canceling student loan debt is not going to solve. It's not going to solve the problem of the cost of education. Over the last six years of my term as governor, we held the line on tuition. And when I went in, they were raising tuition in my state at the universities at 15 percent plus inflation annually. Annually, and they had sold this that they should keep doing this. So we held the line on tuition for six straight years. We implemented performance funding in our colleges and universities, and the performance funding amount for our universities. Is five, was when I left $580 million per year. And 11 of our schools were, were, could get it. Three didn't get it, and eight shared the, shared the $580 million. So it was a big deal. Uh, we, and on top of that, we invested a lot of money in career and technical training. So these are pretty simple concepts. It's about creating incentives to make sure all of our higher education institutions were doing their, their most important job. What's that? Is prepare students for an opportunity to get a good job. When I went to school, what did I think about? What's it cost me? Do I get a job? How much money do I make? The results speak for themselves. For three years in a row, U.S. News and World Report has ranked Florida's higher education system as the best in the nation. Not second, the best. As I tell my good friend Rick Perry every time I have a chance. <laughs> we have the second lowest state university tuition in the nation. When I became governor, Rick Perry had been governor for six years, and so all I did was I competed with him on everything I could. <laughs> Politicians in Washington and around the country too often fail to understand the importance of keeping the cost down for higher education. They just want to get, give out government money tied to no results. But it's not fair to us as taxpayers. It's actually not fair to the students. So I'm working on a series of bills right now that I'll be filing soon. That is, the plan is we will drive down the cost of higher education and ensure students are prepared to get a good job. First, if a student defaults on their federal loan, the institution where they took classes took classes should be responsible for a portion of their default. They should have skin in the game. By forcing universities to take more responsibility, they'll have more of an incentive to actually prepare students for careers. Second, there should be the exact same rules whether you're a for-profit school or not-for-profit schools. There shouldn't be different rules because in whether what, whatever type of school you go to, the goal is affordable education and a job at the end. Third, if a college or university raises tuition or fees, they will be automatically cut off from all federal funding, including federally guaranteed loan programs. I used, to, I used to be in a variety of businesses. One was manufacturing. In manufacturing, the expectation was that we reduced our costs constantly. We had to figure out how to be more productive. We have to expect the same thing out of our schools. All federal funding will be cut off if tuition or fees are increased. Pell Grants. You should be able to use Pell Grants for techn technical colleges. So if you decide you want to go to a technical school instead of to a four-year school, why can't you use your Pell Grant for that? Many times, the better, the better paying job is, in is out of a technical school. Finally, we've got to reverse the Obama-era policies that hinder private lenders from giving loans. It shouldn't be just tied to the federal government uh, doing the loans. We should let the private sector um, do the loans. So these are a few of the ideas, um, and we're, we're talking to a lot of individuals about other ideas, but my whole goal is how do you drive down the cost of getting a degree, and how do you make sure when, when a student finishes, they have a good paying job? The Democrats are proposing policy plans that will bankrupt and destroy our country just to win a presidential primary. Hopeful parents and grandparents absolutely deserve better. I mean, if you think, if you think about, like I grew up in a very poor family. I don't know my dad. We lived in public housing. I had a very tough mom. Uh, she said, you're going to go to church all the time. You're going to be an Eagle Scout. 
you're going to make straight A's and go get a job. And she was absolutely committed that I would get a good education because she believed there was a good paying job at the end. Otherwise, why would we be doing it? So parents and grandparents, that's how they think. Uh, we all want our family to do well. Uh, so, so if you think about it, as students, the parents and grandparents, they deserve a serious discussion about how we can make this a better place. And um, we are able to do it in Florida. There's, there's no reason we can't do, do this. There's no reason we can't figure out how to do this less expensively. There's no reason we can't figure out how to make sure this is more accountable to the student getting a job at the end. That's the whole purpose of this. If you want to go, if you want to go get a degree and you know there's no ability to get a job at the end, that's great. But the federal taxpayer should not be on the hook for that. That's not fair to the federal taxpayers. Donald Trump's presidency has triggered a growing debate on both sides of the Atlantic about the future of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, and U.S. policy regarding the alliance. In NATO, The Dangerous Dinosaur, Ted Galen Carpenter outlines how NATO in its current form has outlived its purpose, explains why burden sharing is only part of the problem, and proposes a new approach that will be not only less costly and risky to Americans, but will better serve European security interests as well. NATO, The Dangerous Dinosaur, is available now from online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.